Welcome to Quat Podcast. This is the first actual content episode. I'm experimenting with a lots of stuff, content, the format, the technology. So let's see how this goes. And in this episode, I wanted to just read through a paper. Not too big. It's a review opinions paper. Um, it's about immunology, and it's the frontier of many medical fields. And I had to read this paper because. Um, their author actually recommended me to read it. Um, the author's name is Mark M. Davis. He is one of the leaders of immunology. And the title of the paper is A Prescription for Human Immunology. So I'm just going to read through the paper, pause as I need to, and uh, consume the knowledge. So let's get started. It's 1 a.m. And yesterday, I wanted to start the podcast because I was reading paper and I want to deliver this complicated paper in an easy way to the world. And I'm glad that I used Anchor.fm because I went to their website, made an account, made a recording, and boom, boom, bam, I have my first podcast. And tonight, I finished my second podcast with Anchor. So if you want to tell the world something that you're passionate about, download the free Anchor app or go to the Anchor fm to get started immunology as a branch of the biological sciences has advanced tremendously over the last 50 or so years in this time clonal selection has advanced from the theory to established fact and the basic structures of antibodies and T-cell receptors have been determined, together with their remarkable and thus far unique mechanisms of diversification. A whole system of innate immune receptors and responses has been discovered and elucidated very rapidly, and lymphocytes and other hematopoietic cells can now be subdivided into at least 15 different distinct types. Dozens of cytokines and chemokines have been identified as mediators of cellular communication, and we are the proud possessors of 350 CD antigens, a field that has once known chiefly for its impenetrable jargon, the Byzantine complexity of experiments, acrimonious disputes, and excessive Theorizing is now the very model of a modern, superbly integrated and rich biological field, one of the most successful in biology. We still have the impenetrable jargon, but oh well. We can even claim to have saved the most lives through vaccines, albeit incredibly as most work formulated before immunology could offer much help, and helped bring about a whole new type of pharmacology in the form of specific antibodies as drugs, and to mention the promise of direct immunomodulation made possible by knowledge of specific pathways. So that was the first paragraph. And this paragraph basically talks about all that goodies that came uh, in the past half century. Okay, so let's move on. And yet... Amidst this euphoria, there is a serious problem, which is that virtually none of the advances in basic immunology cited above have been incorporated into standard medical practice, specialized clinics, yes, to an extent, 
but you can go to the most prestigious medical centers in the world and ask, how is this my immune system? And, oh, how is my immune system? And after a short period of eye rolling and looks of amused incomprehension, you might, if they don't just throw you out, if they don't just throw you out. Um, by the way, this author has a lot of parentheses statement and uh, interesting commentaries in it. Um, be offered a white blood cell count, which you should probably decline. Ask about blood lipids, though. You will be greeted with warm smile, minor, minor bloodletting, and morality tales about good and bad cholesterol. Okay. So that was the second paragraph. And basically what it's saying is, hey, we made lots of discoveries in the past century or so. But when you go to the doctor's office, right, you can't just ask, how's my immune system? And that's because we don't know how to measure it. There's no... I mean, there are many reasons. We just know how to count white blood counts, how many white blood cells you have, and different maybe cell populations, but still um, looking at a patient's immune profile is not a standard practice and people don't even know how to do it. That's the message of the second paragraph. Oh, and this second paragraph also talks about how, you know, lipids, LDL, HDL, all that stuff, you know, we can look, count, and make some kind of a assessment of a patient's uh, metabolism, but we don't have such system set up for a patient's immunological states. Okay, let's move forward. Third paragraph. So what's the story here? Is this because the immune system is not important for health? No. At least since AIDS and bubble boys, everybody and their grandmother knows that the immune system is central to his health and that a particular deficiency or misregulation can have severe consequences. Which is also not news to millions of people suffering from almost 90 different types of autoimmunity or more than 100 inherited immune deficiencies or increased susceptibility to infectious disease or cancer because of drug treatment for or aging. So this third paragraph just talks about that immunity is important. That's, it's less importance is not why we don't look at it. It's very important. So maybe the fourth paragraph that I'm about to read is going to tell you about um, why we don't look at immune system in um, general healthcare. So I'm going to read the fourth paragraph. It is also becoming clear that many diseases that were not previously thought of as immunological, such as atherosclerosis or Alzheimer's disease, have a basis in immunological mechanisms. The list of these will only grow as more research is done. In fact, people are so aware of and worried about their immune system that there's booming business in products labeled immune boosters available at pharmacies and health food stores near you. And yet, there can be no basis for such a claim unless there are metrics of immune function that can show such a boost. A central thesis of this essay will be that immunologists should establish metrics of immunological health in humans and mice too, for that matter, in order to both better understand the diseases that we study and to make what we know more accessible to the public and the general medical community. Okay, so that ends the first part of the paper. Um, I just read four paragraphs. In summary, it talks about how we found a lot about interesting immunological things in the past half century. Um, we, however, cannot just go to a doctor and ask about how our immune system is doing, although our immune system is very important. Many diseases actually are strongly linked, if not caused by 
immune problems. And the author advocates for coming up with a metric to measure a patient or a person's uh, immunological states. Let's move on to the second part of the paper, titled Over-Reliance on the Mouse Model. I see what's coming. Okay, let's read it. How did we arrive at this state of affairs? A good case can be made that the mouse has been so successful at uncovering basic immunologic mechanisms that now many immunologists rely on it to answer every question. Where it was once common to use a variety of species, there is now such an abundance of reagents available in mouse immunology that one has to have an overpowering reason to work in other species, including humans. It has just raised the bar of evidence required for journals and grant reviewers, as pointed out by blah blah and blah blah, two different authors and papers that I don't want to read their name. Uh, this has skewed the field so much that most clinical trained immunologists keep at least a few, usually a lot more, mice in the back room so that they can have a steady flow of paper, grant funding, etc., etc. And some have abandoned human work entirely as a lost cause. But this is just the price of progress, no? Well, except that mice are lousy models for clinical studies. This is readily apparent in autoimmunity, parentheses, another paper cited, and in cancer immunology, parentheses, another paper cited, where are dozens, if not hundreds, of protocols that work well in mice, very few have been successful in humans. Similarly, in neurological diseases, the mice, the mouse models, have also been disappointing. Why has the mouse been so unsuccessful as a clinical model? A number of possibilities have been put forward. One is that the use of inbred strain creates a wealth of homozygous recessive defects that skew the regulation of the immune response, outside of the paper. Another potential culprit is the artificiality of many disease-inducing protocols. And third is the sheer evolutionary distance, 65 million years between mice and humans, and the likelihood that the immune system of a short-lived ground-dwelling mammals that can replicate quickly may be substantially different than that of a long-lived, somewhat higher off-the-ground mammals that replicate very slowly, and thus has more of an evolutionary investment in individual survival. In this regard, blah and blah have carefully delineated the many differences between mice and humans with respect to various immune markers, as have recent rip reports contrasting human versus mouse phenotypes, citation, citation, in specific gene deficiencies. Okay, so the this second part of the paper talks about how we're overusing mouse models to do immunology and how there is a pressure, you know, career pressure, financial pressure, paper, all that, that are inducing many people to walk away or distance themselves from human studies and move with move on to mouse studies. And he, the author, cites many studies that that um, contrast how mice experiments can be very different from human experiments. And author uses reasons such as humans being, you know, slower reproducing, more invested in theoretically uh, making progeny to contrast the 
um, fundamental difference between mice immune system and human immune system. Fair? I'm going to move on. Although it is not clear which of these possible explanations is most important, it seems that mouse-human differences are not even being studied systematically. We seem to be in a state of denial where there is so much in studying the mouse model that it seemed almost unthinkable to look elsewhere, and yet if we had objective criteria for particular human responses, we might be able to use mice or other animal models more appropriately. One possible answer could lie in the renewed interest in humanized mice, which in most cases means immune deficient mice into which are introduced either human, hemopoietic stem cells, or white blood cells. Although promising, it should not be assumed that such mice are equivalent to a human immune system in any respect, unless it is demonstrated to be so by a variety of objective measures. Many of these can be come only from developing metrics of human immune function. Thus, only very important reason to develop such metric is that they would allow us to see any particular animal model with much more confidence. Okay, so that ends the second part of the essay that's focused on uh, saying negative things about mice. And I, by the argument, mice and human are different. We don't even know the difference, but they have many fundamental differences. So now let's read on. Oh, also the important part of the second part is that to understand the difference between human and mice immune system, we still have to study human immune system to be able to contrast these two. So it looks like we have to study human model, which is the title of the third part of this paper, the human model. So I'm going to start reading this part. The human model. This argument leads inevitably to the conclusion that if we are to make more rapid progress in clinical useful immunology and metric for immunological health, we need to introduce, encourage more efforts in human immunology and somewhat, somehow compensate for all the disadvantages that have discouraged so many people in our field. Here, a good illustration of what can happen is the field of human genetics. Long ago, in the 1970s, human genetics was one of the least happening fields around. There was not really much about how you could do in most cases besides describing a mutation and constructing a family tree. Among geneticists, human genetics was considered a backwater compared to what could be done in bugs, flies, and worms. Then, gene cloning came along, and especially the Human Genome Project. Quote, uh, parenthesis, I'm compressing things a bit here. And suddenly genes could be identified and mechanistic work could be done, and so forth. This has transformed the field, and hardly a day goes by now without some new discovery in human genetics. This is largely because the Genome Project put in place a massive chunk of infrastructure that made looking for genes and polymorphisms almost trivial. And so, people could focus on more interesting things. The other useful lesson of the Genome Project is that it showed that the typical academic lab is not the be-all and all of how science should be done, but the more industrial models can, in, the, in some cases, be more appropriate. It is worth remembering that this was a pretty hot debate at the time, as many thought that the big science model being proposed for the Genome Project, with its emphasis on economies, uh, economies of scale, would fatally pollute biological science as we know it then, as we knew it then. Luckily, the big science proponents won the argument, uh, citation, 
with a significant help from Craig Venture and Celera, or we would still be working toward finishing the human genome today. The point is that although the relatively small academic labs, as we know and love them, are great for innovation and out-of-the-box thinking, some problems in biology and other sciences for that matter, particularly those that involve a great deal of repetitive assay and data collection, are much better suited to a large-scale organization and execution. The data are both more uniform and considerably cheaper. Okay. So that was the third part of this paper titled The Human Model. The theme of this part is that we got to look at human and sometimes looking at human can completely elevate a scientific field. Example is the Human Genome Project. And to do this kind of a human-centric um, um, analysis, it's important to systematize how we look at human stuff, generate data, etc., so that we can analyze that uniform output from this infrastructure. The author um, agrees that individual labs can have out-of-the-box thinking and creativity, etc., etc., but to do something big uh, that results in generating a large amount of data, looking at a large amount of cells, etc., in that complicated model, industrial infrastructure like used in the human genome project can be beneficial maybe he's hinting that maybe we should set up some kind of center or centers that have the same machine the same you know cells input the same way of looking at or generating the raw data so that we can make that uh, leap forward in human immunology and the title of the next section is what to do maybe the author talks about uh, his vision so let's move forward Hopefully, the preceding discussion has convinced the reader that the mouse models are not the answer to everything in immunology and that we need to make greater efforts in human immunology if we are to realize the potential health benefits. But how to do this is an important question. Naturally, one could just increase funding for what's being done now and that would certainly help, but I could argue that, like the recent history of human genetics, we could be much bolder. In addition, even with massive new funding, it's pretty clear that human immunology will never catch up to mouse immunology if they pursue parallel path, with each lab doing its own thing, largely independent of everyone else. This is because there are just too many reagents and tools available to mouse immunology and nowhere near the restrictions and limitations that are involved in human work. Instead, I think a good case can be made for taking some very different approach in human immunology that take advantage of its strength and work around its weaknesses. So what are the strengths? There are simply that one, billions of people screen themselves for illness every day and that those who are most ill visit doctors and hospitals and while there contribute millions of blood specimens. Two, many thousands of healthy volunteers can be recruited for studies of normal people that can be assayed in parallel. Three, hundreds of millions of people are vaccinated every year and this presents a valuable resource for the study. Of a normal immune system perturbed in a safe way. Four, specific immunological illnesses have been studied intensively. Almost 90 different autoimmune syndromes have been described as well as more than 120 inherited immune deficiencies. Thousands of infectious diseases affect human pathologically with new variants of or whole new organism arising regularly. We also harbor 
thousands of commensal bacteria in our bodies and at least some of these influence immunological functions for good or ill. Lastly, as more and more diseases are found to have an immunological component, it is even more imperative that the working of an immune system, human immune system, or its failings be more fully understood and incorporated into basic medical practice. This leads to a, an argument for a broad-scale systems approach to immunology in human that can use high-throughput immune monitoring assay to perform uniform analysis across many different clinical samples, blood usually, and those from healthy people, as well as to establish the basic parameters of immunological health. These will benefit from the many assays that we have available that can assess dozens of soluble cytokines distinguished between 350 cell surface protein CD antigens, separate the 15 plus distinct types of white or whole blood cells, isolate many signaling pathways, and survey the expression of 25,000 plus genes and regulatory RNAs. Comparing gene expression patterns in normal individuals versus patients with autoimmune disorders has already proved fruitful in identifying aberrant cytokine pattern linked to these diseases and suggests therapeutic options. Further genetic analysis where single nucleotide polymorphism SNPs will be valuable, at least in the long term, although it should be noted that patients, patient care is a real-time activity and that the sub Letties of a multigenic disorders may be too problematic to be of much use in the clinic. Specifically, studies of a susceptibility loci other than HLA in human autoimmunes have shown very modest risk factors, rendering this kind of information not immediately useful clinically, although it certainly can point to um, commonalities and drug treatment strategy eventually. Okay, so let's pause this part. Uh, and uh, review quickly. The title of this block is what to do. And the uh, author is saying that we already have kind of nice entry to looking at human immunology. One, many people just leave blood to hospital and we can look at those. Two, uh, we can recruit many normal people and assay these people in parallel. Three, Many people get vaccinated. Why don't we look at before and after vaccination to study them? Um, four, we know a lot about autoimmune diseases now. Not enough, but we have nine different immune diseases syndromes found, and we found many um, inherited immune deficiencies. So we can assay these people and gain insight into human immunology. So the author is saying that we have already established uh, entries to human immunology. And we can look at cytokines, proteins, RNAs, gene expressions, um, and SNPs to um, make some kind of a conclusion about healthy people, sick people, etc. And author's a little bit, I think, bitter about the SNPs, um, saying that, yeah, you can find SNPs and correlate them with diseases, etc. But patient cares real time, just knowing somebody's germline risk factor may not be that useful in um, figuring out the next step for the patient. Okay, let's move on. Why focus on defining immunological health versus mechanism of disease? Because I think that's what's missing from this picture. And all this, and given the variations in human immunoparameters in people, we need to get a grip on this before we can properly understand the perturbations of many diseases. Although some of this is built into all analysis as a control population. It hasn't really been 
tackled as an end in itself. And yet, it has to be defined if we are ever to give physicians the metric needed to answer the questions posed at the beginning of this essay. So, how can we define immunological health? First, by searching through all the biomarkers mentioned and finding ones that delineate healthy individuals from those with any of the various diseases mentioned. As much has been started already via gene expression data. Or more simply, health is the absence of diseases and the more disease phenotype that can be integrated into the same data set, the more you should be able to identify warning signs of systems that is malfunctioning. A well-known example of this is the loss of CD4 positive T cells in advanced HIV infection AIDS, which leaves the victim open to all kinds of opportunistic infections. This example also illustrates a likely truism here, which is that immune system is made up of many interacting cell types, and the failure of any of these is likely to have a deleterious consequence for the health of an individual. This suggests that we need to develop a battery of functional assays for each cell type, or at least enumerate them by flow cytometry. A functional assay is ideal because not only count the cells of that type, but you test them for particular attribute or attributes that essentially integrate over many potential defects, inherited or acquired. Ultimately, these cellular assays may be replaced by a simple biomarker, a particular cytokine or gene, or just a number of cells of a particular phenotype, but perhaps not. So this would seem to be a useful adjunct to the other data sets. Thus, at the end of this, one could imagine a normal range of functional activity together with the correlative biomarkers that define the useful range for a given cell type, or either side of which are examples of where the cell doesn't work as well, as illustrated by one or more disease states. This could be to a score for each cell type that could then turn into a useful series of clinical tests as shown in figure one. Okay, so let's summarize this part. So the author is saying that we have these collectibles from patients, normal people, and for each cell population, T cell, B cell, or just for in general, we can make assays to see how healthy that population is. We don't even know what healthy population means, but the author is saying that let's just perturb them, like perturb the crap out of them and see, you know, how they react and what's a good reaction, what's a bad reaction. We get to get a better insight into human immunology, immune system. And author is um, fantasizing or just thinking that one day we can have a score, like your credit score for each immune population so when patient comes in and asks you, hey, you know, what's up with my immune system? You can give the um, patient that score. Um, I think it's really nice. Um, I think that seems like a future and uh, I like it. Okay, now let's, um, oh, talk about the figure one. Uh, titled representative assay for a particular white blood cell. It's just a very simple um, figure. It's a horizontal bar from left to right, left being overreactive and right being underreactive. So if you, if your population, let's say if your T cell population um, gets some kind of score that's on the overreactive side, there's a higher chance of autoimmunity allergy. On the other hand, if the T cell population gets scored towards the underreactive side, then 
you know, you have weak T cell population, you might get diseases, aging, drug treatment, infection, mutation, blah, blah, blah. And in the middle, you have that healthy uh, score range. It's just like a glucose or any, you know, metric. And this metric, if found, cannot be applied to a uh, population. I like it. I like it. A patient comes and you draw the blood, you do basic chem 7, and you, you know, if you are suspecting some kind of immune problem, you just order this um, immune assay. Maybe if it's super cheap, you know, you can do it with a drop of blood, then you can just uh, profile this for all the population available and get a general health of this person's uh, immunity. I like it. I like it a lot. Okay, let's keep reading. Uh, another component. Oh, where was I? Oh, okay, okay. Let's keep reading. Another important component of this is to develop the informatics infrastructure that is able to handle this amount of information and perhaps most critically integrate the different type of data in the search for the marker and the pattern for markers that correlate with particular disease state. This points to another benefit, which is to find commonalities between different diseases that depend on similar mechanisms. This may not correlate with a particular type of disease as they are categorized now, largely by inspection, but may get to a deeper understanding of the underlying causes and lead to potential drug treatments more rapidly. Citation, citation. Another promising area of informatics is that of text mining, where various data can be pulled from literature to create a kind of general meta-analysis of the literature. Okay, so the last part, this is just last two short paragraphs of this blog titled um, what to do and this last two paragraphs talks about the importance of informatics data analysis and <clears throat> my interest personally is this uh, aligning diseases right creating this the atlas of diseases and uh, so i'm completely on board with this idea of just you know matching diseases with each other to see their uh, similarities that we didn't appreciate um, these similarities can reclassify some diseases, but I'm pretty sure uh, inspection by many doctors over many years get you pretty good um, uh, insights between the diseases. But, you know, we'll see. And this is my research uh, interest. And I also like how the author uses just one sentence to talk about text mining because I think it's overrated because a lot of, you know, papers are written to kind of retell what's already being known, plus a little bit of a new thing. So um, text mining is almost like creating an average, you know, I don't know, postdoc level thinker uh, in the field. That's just my opinion. And I also like how author didn't talk too much about the, uh, the importance of text mining. We'll see. IBM Watson failed, I think, because of that too. But anyways. So let's go on to the next block, and this block's called Specifics. Okay, I'm excited to read this part, what the author has in mind. If I'm an investor, this is the part that I care about, and I want to see how, you know, he thinks about the specifics. Okay, how to implement this approach. Obviously, more NIH funding would be needed, and there are already some very forward-looking efforts to encourage human immunology ongoing at NIH particularly the Cooperative Centers for Translational Research and Bios Defense created six years ago. Disclaimer, the author receives funding from this program, of course. But one basic step is to have fully equipped immune monitoring facility at all major research medical schools 
because that's where the blood samples are being taken and there can be more direct links with the research projects at the site. Okay, I like this. So he's proposing some kind of a collection site, like a post office, post box. You can just drop your mail, your mail will go. So here, maybe you drop the blood, the same process will apply. Or the, the blood will be sent to the same place for the systematic assaying. Although there are a number of such facilities, there's not yet enough of a national or international program to link them together and to standardize and validate assays, although a very good beginning has been made by this cancer immunotherapy monitoring program. Bioinformatics standards are also needed as well as the deposition of relevant data after a reasonable blackout period and or publication. At Stanford University, we have set up what could be a prototype facility with these features the human immune monitoring core, but the need for a broad and uniform approach is ever more apparent if we are to realize all the benefits of this approach quickly. This type of coordination and standardization is also important with respect to clinical trials, and here the Immune Tolerance Network has done this very well. It also would be useful to have a website dedicated to reports of human mouth differences or similarities in immune function with a national or international effort, we could at much less cost than the Human Genome Project provide something like the richness of the data infrastructure to create a great and continuing resource for human immunology. Efforts along these lines could easily fit into the concept of personalized medicine, together with the analysis of signal pathways, soluble biomarkers, and genetics. Citation, Hood et al. And I think uh, Leroy Hood was uh, involved in this author's um, training if i remember correctly okay so that um ends this section about the specifics and i think that what other is talking about here is that we need some kind of standardized data collection specimen collection processing infrastructure to uh, move forward just as the human genome project moved forward with that systematic um, infrastructure I like it. Um, I think these are great ideas and um, I like how doing this allows many data analysis myself to gain access to these things, right? Like COVID happened and there are a lot of centers that started to release data in a nice way, an easy, parsable manner. And I think that is crucial in inviting people to look at the data and make conclusions and theories. So I really like this uh, attitude towards systematizing things and uh, big picture thinking. I think carrying out these is very difficult because you have a bunch of bureaucratic barriers to jump over, etc. But um, I really like this uh, position. Now let's read the last part called Concluding Remarks. Immunologists have long emphasized the potential benefits of human health of basic research in the field. Although the mouse model has been spectacularly successful in advancing our understanding of basic immunological mechanisms, its record in formulating clinical useful protocol is much less impressive. Thus, to fully realize the potential benefits of immunology for human health, we need to place more emphasis on human studies and make greater efforts to allow it to flourish. This could also create a rich resource for future studies of new immunological principles, especially as human life in nature, more or less, outbred and exposed to many more diseases than 
lab mice. Finish. We just read together this paper by Dr. Mark Davis called A Prescription for Human Immunology. So the paper summarizes like this. In the past half century, we made many basic science progress in understanding immunology. But not many of these things translated well to medicine. And to do that, we need to look at human immunity because humans are much more complex than mice, which powered the basic um, immunology advances that I just mentioned. And then to do that, we need to maybe take advantage of many entry points we have, like drawing patients' blood and getting samples and further delving into autoimmune patients, etc., and systematically collect this data, create infrastructure, analyze it, name it, and eventually make assays to be able to score uh, maybe each population or a person's immunity overall. Um, yeah. Thanks for tuning in. I'm still uh, experimenting with content, format, sound, software, all that to make quad podcast better so I can deliver you awesome science in a nice way. Hopefully you're driving to work, you listen to this, learn something new. Before you go to bed, if you want to get tired, listen to this, learn something new. Um, that's how I listen to many people's podcasts. So I want to create good content for all of you. And I hope you enjoyed it. Please subscribe so that I can keep going. Um, and please share it with your friends. And I really appreciate this early support. Thank you for tuning in.